You are listening to the B-Fox and B-Frank show. We have one game remaining in the entire college football season, sad to say, but we are okay. here. The finalists at all SEC, which um, definitely won't be annoying at all and hasn't been annoying at all from certain media members, Georgia and Alabama. Uh, let's let's talk about how we got there, and we have to talk about the greatest, one of the, I would say one of the top three Rose Bowls ever, really yeah. including last year's, and then of course Texas USC, the Vince Young yep. game. Georgia outlasting Oklahoma in double overtime. Oklahoma was cruising in the first half, up by 17. Georgia uh, completed the largest comeback in Rose Bowl history, and Kirby Smart in his second year not only won the SEC, but now he'll also be playing for a national title. Real tough spot to be in if you're Mark Rick. Yeah, that it sucks because he got the turnover chain just destroyed by Wisconsin losing there and then watching your team essentially go and play for a national championship two years removed from probably not deserving to be fired from there. So it's a real tough look if you're Mark Richt. You gotta you gotta be a little upset about it, but I mean my Miami's still a decent spot to land, you know. Oh, what was what was Mark Richt? He's getting paid millions to coach Miami now instead of Georgia. Yeah, I mean the 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 woe or feelings of, of empathy are, you know, there's nothing that says to me Mark Ricks couldn't have done the exact same thing with this team. Right. And I, I really had an issue with him getting fired, you know, when he did after such a string of success, but ultimately not achieving as much as, you know, the higher-ups that Georgia would have wanted. Basically the same thing that happened to Bo Pelini in Nebraska, except Georgia actually hired a football coach. Nebraska just hired a nice guy, and they paid the price. Now they're hiring a football coach in Scott Frost, so maybe that'll turn around. I mean, it is the big time west, so they should be able to make some moves. But back to this game, um, I mean, Baker Mayfield, as he was all season, was electric. And on the other side of the ball – Georgia seemed like they could have run the ball for 25, 30 yards every single carry. There's just no resistance by either defense for most of the game. It just felt like a Big 12 game. That's all it was. It's just a Big 12 game out in Pasadena. No one, no one put any sort of semblance of defense together. I think there were two total turnovers, or maybe three, and they were late in the game, and they resulted in points for the other teams. So kind of washed on that but Baker Mayfield did what he wanted until overtime when all of a sudden they put the training wheels on him and for some reason weren't just letting him loose with a 25 yard field and four downs to do it Rodney Anderson was awesome on the ground too for Oklahoma I think that's I feel like that's just getting bottled up too much with the uh the Baker pictures and you know getting over his last game at Oklahoma and things like that but he had 26 carries for over 200 yards and two touchdowns and then like you said, Georgia, Chubb and Sonny Michelle were insane. They both ran for over 140 yards, three and two touchdowns respectively, and then they got good production from a freshman quarterback who just protected the ball, 20-29 passing, two touchdowns. I mean, that is probably the best game Georgia could ever play on offense. Yeah, and, I mean, it was, it was just laughable at times to see 
defensive alignment of Oklahoma. I know one of the touchdown runs from just audible at the line because there weren't down linemen on like half of the Oklahoma line, so they just ran directly there and got like 30-yard touchdown. But in overtime, Oklahoma, like I understand Rodney Anderson was having a good game, but to completely take the ball out of Baker Mayfield's hands just doesn't make much sense to me. You are still playing an SEC defense in Georgia that has a great front seven, and not only that, a lot of depth on the front seven where they can rotate a lot of guys in and out and stay relatively fresh for that point in the game, whereas Anderson is really being asked to do everything um, for Oklahoma on the ground all game. So he's clearly not, you know, as fresh as, say, you know, Chubb and Michelle who can change out um, pretty easily. So that was that was really puzzling for me. And, like, as good as Anderson was in the game, you know, he – is not the Heisman Trophy winner. He's not the best player in college football. So just on both of those fronts, I really, I really don't understand. It was uber conservative, and first overtime it didn't matter, but I mean ultimately that was going to catch up to them, and it it did when Cybert uh, had his field goal blocked in second overtime, and you know, Georgia came right back and scored. Um, so that it, it did really reek of playing not to lose in overtime for Oklahoma instead of, you know, letting your best player go out and win the game for you. Bob Stoops never would have played like that. I'm going to say that right now. No. This is this squarely on Lincoln Riley. So this first time, and uh, Big Game Bob was well noted for a lot of shortcomings in, in large games. Um, but, yeah, for, I mean, the – the lack of head coaching experience on both sidelines, like this is, these are these are great results for both programs. And I know oh, yeah. Oklahoma's going to take a step back when when Mayfield goes, but I mean we also expected them to take a, a pretty big step back offensively when you know Mixon, Pirine, and Westbrook all left after last year. But there's there's going to be plenty of talent there, and Lincoln Riley is a good coach, especially good offensive coach. He has them going in the right direction. Kirby Smart, obviously has Georgia back at the level that they want to be at. So, I mean, it's it's bitter for Oklahoma right now, but both these programs in, you know, very good hands with these young coaches going forward. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if you're Oklahoma, it's a game of what ifs. You know, what if we'd done this? What if we'd done that? And it kind of looked like both coaches were squaring each other up for like a six-overtime game with the way they were playing so conservative early just to see how they play in like the short field. But at the end of the day, I mean, Georgia's run game and Oklahoma's poorest defense was the difference. It's the Big 12 for, you know, Lincoln Riley. He doesn't have to worry or really care too much about the defense if he's going to have an offense that can put up 40-plus points a night. So... They, they don't have much to worry about. Obviously, they have to replace a Heisman Trophy winner, but they've got talent everywhere, it seems like, and it's just a reload instead of a rebuild for them. And then Georgia, obviously, you can't be happier with what you did, bringing back Kirby Smart, and all of a sudden you got a freshman quarterback where we were talking. I mean, I know we both said that the allure of Notre Dame Stadium is kind of gone or the pressure of it. This is a kid that his first start, he won 20-19 to at Notre Dame in a game that easily could have gone the Irish way, and now he's playing for the national championship. So it's kind of crazy how quickly things can turn. Yeah, I mean, all that big game experience for the Little League World Series mm-hmm. up until now, 
That does it for you. Certainly, certainly helpful. Um, the the second game is as entertaining as the first one was. Second game is a complete snoozer. Alabama dominated uh, 24 to 6. And in retrospect, not super surprising um, considering how Clemson looked and, and played after September, really. I think September, all of the equity that they built up really carried them through the rest of the season because in a lot of ways they reminded me of, you know, Baylor basketball last year. Gaudy record, um, you know, a lot, lot of okay to good wins, um, but never really got that, that sense of, of domination or, you know, the ability to overwhelm teams. Um, it's really, really underwhelming for a lot of the season and that really reared its head up of course in the loss to Syracuse, by far the worst loss out of any of these, um, playoff teams or contenders. I mean, it's, it's even worse than giving up 55 to Iowa. Um, but, yeah, Alabama is just clinical. Nick Saban's out for blood after losing in the national championship last year. So this is this is what happens, basically. It was a classic Alabama game. I mean, this is what we're used to on Saturdays at 3 o'clock on CBS. Everyone hypes it up as, like, Bama could go down, and then next thing you know they end up winning 27-10 to 10 in just a snoozer of a game where they just completely dominate. I mean, they forced Kelly Bryant to make plays, and he just couldn't. They held Clemson's de- Clemson's offense, excuse me, to 65 rushing yards, which when you become one-dimensional like that with the strength of the Alabama secondary, you are not going to win any games. You will lose that game 10 times out of 10. And then Jalen Hurts is clinical with how he plays quarterback at this point. He seemingly protects the ball at all costs. He'll maybe throw six to seven incompletions a game. His numbers won't be gaudy like Baker Mayfield or anything like that, but he will consistently put together a good 16 to 16 of 24 performance, something like that, 150 yards and a couple touchdowns, and then, you know, the casual rushing for 50-plus. And that's exactly what he did this time. Yeah, he's consistent. He's never really going to get a lot of uh, Heisman shine or anything like that. He's not going to put up numbers on the same level of Lamar Jackson, but he's going to be solid every single game, knowing that he has pretty close to the equivalent of an NFL defense backing him up. And really the difference in this game was Kelly Bryant is not Deshaun Watson. And on top of that, they don't have anyone who can make, you know, ridiculous catches in traffic or go up and get balls like Mike Williams was able to do last year in the national championship. Missing those two guys on offense going up against an Alabama defense that is just as good, if not better, than last year's is just, I mean, that's going to be tough to get anything going as we saw, um, double-digit points would have been an accomplishment. But as it stands, it's going to be Alabama-Georgia. Um, both teams lost to Auburn. Georgia got to play Auburn again in the SEC championship. They're able to win that. Um, in what is, quote-unquote, the official national championship game, um, who do you think has the edge? Well, I was going to take Central Florida until you said that because taking a one-game sample for each team, having played a mutual opponent, UCF was the only one to beat them in the first try. 
But it's true. People forget we, that. I, I guess we'll we'll leave that elsewhere for now. But it's got to be Alabama. I mean, as fun as that game was for Georgia, you don't. I mean, this Alabama defense is exponentially better than Oklahoma's. They're not going to allow 20 yards per carry. They're not going to let a freshman quarterback throw all over the yard. It's going to be pressure. They're going to force them to throw the ball, and they're going to man up on the coverage where these are grown men, NFL-ready players going up against these Georgia wide receivers. So I don't see any way that Alabama couldn't and wouldn't be the favorite or you know people could pick against them. Because I think the offense is just going to control the clock. Classic Alabama game. They're going to grind down the opponent. And then the defense is just going to go to work. Yeah, I want Georgia to win. But I definitely think Alabama is going to win this game. Um, I don't think they'll you know, earn them the right to call themselves national champions. Um, but we can talk about that in a sec. Um, I just really... The, the Rose Bowl would have been a perfect, like, national championship game. There's no way this can possibly hope to live up to anything close to that, especially how he's been spoiled with very good national championships the last two years of uh, Alabama-Clemson, um, especially last year's. But I, I just don't foresee the same sort of offensive fireworks in this game. I, I just don't really think that that Alabama, unless they're going up against a, an, a completely overmatched team such as a Vanderbilt or an Ole Miss, as they did in back-to-back weeks earlier this season, they're really capable of, of scoring in bunches like that against a team like Georgia. So I think this will be a, a more controlled game, pretty similar to their game against Clemson, except Georgia will be able to move the ball a little more. So we'll call it maybe like 28-20 or something like that. But We'll be rooting for the dogs. Um, win one for for the Gipper, Mark Rex. Pour, yep. Pour one out for the boy. <laughs> <laughs> that poor guy. Do you do you think they send him a championship ring if they win? That would just be rubbing it in. But <laughs> right. <laughs> like even if, even if they meant it, like wow. or like half a ring, they just cut it in half. <laughs> Not be well received. Um, so, talked about the, the college football halves. The, the main have not this year was UCF, who finished, um, I don't have the graphic up in front of me, but it was, it was the fifth or sixth undefeated season in the last, you know, 12 to 13 years, years yeah. by a non quote unquote power five team. Um, what is now considered a group of five teams, um, some of the past teams, including Boise State, TCU, Utah, um, now UCF. Obviously, a couple of those have, have moved on to bigger conferences because they realize that's the only way they're going to get a fair shake at a natty. Um, but, yeah, UCF this year, um, a lot of the, the articles now in retrospect after UCF beat Auburn and people are kind of willing to accept that they're good at football, it's like if you put UCF in the field, who you take out? And I don't think that's really the proper way to be looking at it because UCF is a team, and I can't stress this enough, 
that did not lose a football game this year. Not so one. They, not one. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be looking to displace teams to include them. They should just already be in, and you should be thinking about who else you could put in there. But to answer the question, I would say out of the current field, or the teams that actually made it, Georgia and Oklahoma, to me, have the most airtight resumes. Um, Alabama played a, a schedule that was um, very much helped by playing Clemson, and I know people like Feinbaum used that to, you know, boost the top 25 wins and also the strength of schedule, comically so, when that was not something that was used to evaluate, you know, them getting into the playoff. Um, so there, I mean, I, I think, you know, unquestionably UCF should have been in over Bama, but looking back, Clemson's schedule really did not age well, and especially that loss to Syracuse that they completely got a free pass for, um, which is just remarkable because, again, Syracuse did not win a single game the rest of the year after beating Clemson, which is ridiculous because that happened, like, first or second week in October. <laughs> it was early. Um, yeah, so... I mean, either of those two teams, I wouldn't have a problem, quote-unquote, booting in favor of UCF. But I think the, the bigger issue here is, in the current four-team system, and we've talked about this ad nauseum already on the show. Yep. Like, the, the UCF's never going to have a chance. With, mm-hmm. with completely um, subjective selection process and limiting it to only four teams, there is zero hope for a team like UCF to ever make it. And it's sad because there's, I would say, like a 98, 99% chance that once Scott Frost leaves, they're never going to be in this position again. So I, I do like that they're embracing it fully, putting up the championship banner, paying national championship bonuses to the assistant coaching staff. Because, mm-hmm. um, I mean, they're the only loss they took this year is from the committee. So it was. Like, it's not. You can't you can't prove that they're not the best team in college football, basically. It's setting a dangerous precedent that it doesn't you you can take weeks off essentially in college football. You if instead of, you know, this was the argument a lot of people made. If USC doesn't go to Notre Dame and they instead play so shitty team, right? That is yeah. the that is the other argument that people are making. But like there is very decent merit to the argument in that you can play shitty teams and get away with it. You know, you don't have to have these big challenges. And it, even if you lose to these shitty teams, if it's early enough, people just seem to forget about it. And the ages or the losses don't age at all. It's just kind of a snapshot and, you know, it's like, oh, this happened. But... Look, they play in the ACC, so it's okay because, you know, they had to play this team, that team, and the other team at some point during the season. I mean, when are we going to think of this idea? I mean, obviously precedent means nothing to the committee because of what they did with Ohio State, Penn State last year. But what are they going to do? Just keep it on a changing basis year after year? This is... We got rid of a flawed system for a similarly flawed system, and now how are they going to fix it, I guess, is the only answer. And everyone talks expansion, and I agree, but, you know, why can't we just make it easy on ourselves? 
why does it have to be so damn complicated? Why is it that an undefeated team can't get a shot to prove that they're an undefeated team and they're one of the best teams in football? Because every team plays a 13-12 game schedule, and if every team had the choice, they'd be an undefeated team every season. No one chooses to lose games. It's just if you can go week in, week out. I mean, everyone talks about the rigors of the SEC. You know, you're playing grown men. There are athletes in other conferences, believe it or not. And if you can go undefeated in those conferences, that's something different. You know, you're playing a team like Memphis. You're playing a team like Navy. Those are tough teams to play because they play such contrasting styles of football week in and week out. You've got a triple option versus an air raid, and you've got to plan one week for that and then reset your mind to focus on the other one. I'm not saying these teams are of the quality of, you know, I don't want to pick certain SEC teams because they could have been this year. But there are, you know, SEC programs out there that are obviously better teams like LSU. So I get that the competition might be a little higher, but you're still all prepping week after week for opponents that know your past, have played you before, and have an idea of what you're doing. And to go undefeated is should be rewarded. And in this case, we're just penalizing everyone. Yeah, imagine a one-loss Gonzaga team that doesn't win its conference tournament missing the NCAA tournament. Like, that's, I feel, is a kind of equivalence here. And I know it's a little different because that's a much bigger field, but that's kind of how it feels to me. And the the USC argument I really took umbrage with because if you think a hypothetical one-loss USC team is getting in over one-loss Alabama, I don't know if I have. That's, right. That's not happening. Um, the but, idea of it makes sense, but it's yeah. not like in this in this scenario. Like you can you can work. schedule, like you can get and and Baylor back when they were good, they got crucified every year because the toughest team they play out of conference would be like Rice, because in the BCS system, like strength of schedule didn't really matter as much as with if you're beating every team by like forty fifty points, that looks good. And so we we made some progress. We switched to a fourteen playoff, and the human element that truthfully hasn't been all that helpful in you know getting some of these other teams because a lot of it is boiled down to oh okay well you know they have one loss they have two losses but they look better they passed the eye test okay well if it was easy to go undefeated then every team would do that. I know that's not mathematically possible, but you get my point. Um, yep. It's it's discounting what UCF achieved, and that should have been proved further after bowl season when they beat the toughest team by far that Alabama played during the regular season and lost. What do we What do we have? One undefeated team this season, right? It was Central Florida. Yeah. So there are what 121 Division One programs, I think. Something like that. That's yeah, under one percent. It's under one percent of the entire country was undefeated, yet they didn't get a chance to play in the playoff. Yeah, I'm. I'm baffled. <laughs> this is why the committee should be the only one to make the rankings. They should do it starting in like week four or five after a couple games have been played. Everyone starts with a clean slate, and then from there we just start slotting our teams one through twenty-five. And then based on the criteria that they lay out in week five, that's what we're going to use the rest of the season. Yeah, rankings suck and are stupid, and especially early in the season, because that's always how, I mean, 
I don't hate to keep picking on the SEC, but I will. But that's that's how you know a conference like the SEC gets a lot of prestige early in the season, and then you have people holding up wins over. All right, well they beat Texas A&M, Arkansas, preseason top twenty team. When re- in reality, those teams really struggle, end up being like six and six or seven and five, and that win shouldn't be valued that highly. It it just kind of creates a system of you know, confirmation bias. We think this team is good. So we're going to say you beating them is a great win. And it's, it's kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, if you will. And I don't know. It's, it's just really, really gains the system makes it impossible for, for the UCFs of the world to win. So, right. I mean, just more is always better. And I, I think as, you know, college football purists really complained that, you know, moving to a four-team playoff would, would ruin the game. I think it's been proven through the few years of its existence. That's not the case. Don't think moving to an eight-team uh, playoff would ruin everything either. Yeah, so, I mean, we need something different, whether it's the changing in how the committee does their job. It's unbelievable that that's their job and they can do it so poorly or just the formatting of the system, but something has to change. And, I mean, we both acknowledge the SEC is a good conference. It's just this is the year of all years where they are the example that we can use. It's not like, you know, we hate the SEC because they have some of the most entertaining games and and football going around, but this is just the life when you're in 2018 now and, and talking about an undefeated team not getting a shot. Yeah, but it, at the same time, it's also, you know, a, a rising tide, no pun intended, lifting all ships. Just because right. Georgia or Alabama is good does not mean that, you know, A&M or Arkansas is, yeah. Like, there are, there are two pretty good, um, oh, three if you want to throw Auburn in there, good teams, and then a lot of, lot of mediocrity and trash, and maybe one or two more good teams. I mean, Kentucky was one of the better teams this year. Yeah. Yeah, they had real aspirations of an SEC East title that you could have said with this great face for a lot of the season. So, Northwestern, Tesselo, Kentucky. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, the last thing to have in this the troubling thing about moving into an, you know, with the committee, you still wouldn't have made that this year. They were yes. so far down there. So, I mean, Something has to change with the selection process. Yeah, and it's... You need to be able to recognize that the 13-0 team is good at football. I could go on such a rant about fucking rankings and polls and shit just from college basketball alone because I love to get myself pissed off reading all the just fools voting in the AP. Seth Davis did not rank Seton Hall, but he had Creighton at 17, who we just beat. This is This is my diatribe for Seton Hall real quick. And... His his rationale was Rutgers says hello. You're going to talk about head-to-head for Purdue, Arizona to rank your teams, but then when it comes to two teams later down the road, you're not going to do it. That's why I don't like Sharpie. Yeah. Light pencil at best. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have a personal reason to get mad online about college basketball rankings and – also, oh, I mean, I understand they're ridiculous and they, they just shouldn't be around, but yeah. it's just it's what there is during the season. Like, it, it is all Purdue Twitter lives for. 
Right, and I they just don't have as much of a profound effect on determining what seems to make yeah. the the postseason as uh as football does. But yeah, right. they're like college college football and basketball are just crazy fan bases, and mm-hmm. it's the stuff to fight about. I certainly certainly feel you on Purdue Twitter transitioning over to uh, to college basketball now. Um, we kind of kind of touched on this. When last we spoke, been on a bit of a hiatus on this show, um, but now we're the in holiday season. Yeah, now we're in conference season. Um, Texas Tech just went into Allen Fieldhouse, really controlled that game start to finish. And looking at how good the Big 12 is again this year, Trey Young at Oklahoma, TCU really flourishing under Jamie Dixon, Press Virginia, Baylor's tough again. Could this? finally be the year and they are looking vulnerable that Kansas is is knocked off perish we have reached that point in the season we'd have to ask yeah, it's it's the early January late December you know a couple games into conference play Kansas doesn't look as good as they used to should we all panic and there might be reason to panic this year because TCU is so sound fundamentally all around Trey Young is just an unbelievable playmaker for Oklahoma who can seemingly keep and put his team into any game they're in. Baylor is still athletic, still rebounds the ball incredibly well, but is missing that scoring punch. And then Texas Tech is a really good team that not a lot of people have been talking about. They are such a matchup nightmare. They have so many scorers that are 6'6 or taller that play the guard and wing position and just cause problems down low. They rebound the ball really well. They play great pressure defense, and we saw it at Kansas. When they can get going early and take control of the game and control the tempo, that's when they're dangerous. So there are a lot of good teams. I think the Big 12 gets at least six bids this year, and I also think at least three teams are going to the Sweet 16. That's very early calls. I'm not going to name who, but – Long story short, I don't think Kansas' streak is in trouble just because I have so much confidence in Bill's self. And if, when they can get Billy Preston, that team's fine. Yeah, I mean, we've had this conversation pretty much every year for a decade straight. Um, just adding on to Texas Tech, you have to wonder if UNLV would be, you know, yeah, kind but, of back to. But they've been the, doing uh, well. Yeah, but. Not I mean, if you can if you can turn around Texas Tech, make them relevant in basketball, and then some um, for the first UNLV time would be in quite some story. time, yeah, UNLV would be just cleaning up in the Mountain West, and you know, making that conference, they're building building that conference's rep back up to where it was, you know, eight five years ago. Um, but yeah, Kansas definitely has some deficiencies um, as we get down low really can't do much besides dunk, um, which at this point in the season is, is a bit worrisome. You'd hope there'd be more offensive nuance to his game besides, you know, just being a very large human. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's not a lot of, you know, drivers or slashers on this team. There's a lot of guys who can shoot. Um, Devontae Graham, the Ukraine maker, um, even Malik Newman, Pretty solid shooter, but none of those Vic guys can shoot too. Yeah, with Gerald Vick as well. But a lot of those guys are just spot up types. Nobody's really right. shown that they can consistently, you know, take the ball to the basket. 
and that a lot of times allows teams to just press up on the perimeter knowing that most of these guys aren't going to be able to blow by them. So I think a, a lot of these issues can be traced to the offensive end, but, you know, if you're you're matching up against a team like Texas Tech, there's going to be struggles rebounding and defending at certain positions because, as you said, pretty interchangeable on the the floor for, for Texas Tech and across college basketball that's becoming more and more of a trend is trying to achieve quote unquote positionless basketball. And I mean Kansas for the most part is still pretty pretty defined positions and roles, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but you have to be able to adapt and defend teams like, you know, Arizona State or Texas Tech. Two teams that have come in and made Allen like a very ordinary place to play. Yeah, and it's kind of showing the how much the loss of Frank Mason hurts. Like, obviously, it's going to hurt losing a National Player of the Year winner and yeah. candidate, I believe. But it shows how much losing Frank Mason hurts because he was the guy that would run the break, get to the rim, and kind of open everything up for everyone else. He was the fearless guard that would go attack the trees in the paint, and that's just not Devontae Graham's game. That's why the two of them work so well together, and it's why they're having such difficulties when you look at Mikhail Luke out there with him and LeGerald Vick, guys that are, like you said, spot-up or mid-range jump shot guys that don't like getting to the rim, don't like getting physical down there. So defensively, they certainly have some things to work out, but it's, it's concerning seeing the deficiencies offensively, especially given that that's never really been an area that Kansas has had to worry about. Yeah, and it's it's worth mentioning, despite all that, it's still a top 15 team. So much talent on the roster, but just the state of the Big 12 this year, a lot of teams significantly better than we thought they would be, most notably, of course, Oklahoma with Trey Young. Those are going to be great games when Oklahoma plays Kansas. And then Texas Tech, which already beat Kansas on the road. It's, it's going to be tough. And I, I think even TCU, we didn't expect them to be quite this good. We thought they'd be a, a fringe-ranked team, but I think they've exceeded expectations at least a little bit so far. So, I mean, as, as small a conference as the Big 12 is, not even 12 teams anymore, it is incredibly deep. And, I mean, Kansas is really going to have to weather quite the storm if, if they're to extend their streak of titles. Just imagine being Pitt and thinking you could replace Jamie Dixon with Kevin Stallings. Like, what the fuck? That was stupid. <laughs> like, that that didn't make sense at the time because it was, like, Stallings is a known commodity. Like, it's not like you're hiring an up-and-coming young coach. Right. Hiring dude from Vanderbilt who like was okay for a couple of years, but ultimately like you know that's not an adequate replacement for Jamie Dixon. But here we are now. Your program's trash. Congratulations. Yeah, and, and speaking of Vanderbilt, the SEC is a lot better than I thought it would be this year too. They've got Arkansas looks good. Tennessee's been playing well, although they lost I think their last two. A&M's decent, Florida's good. I mean, not a decent, A&M's a good team, Florida's a good team. We've got 
Mississippi State. Challengers, Mississippi State. Who would have thought Ben Howland? Yeah, uh, like it, the the old forgotten coaches, Howland, yeah, Rick Barnes, making Tennessee into something. And Arkansas Auburn just, just beat Tennessee. Yeah, Bruce for the first Pearl. time in like twenty some years, my guy Bruce is back. The Bruce Pearl Bowl. Yeah, and uh, like Frank Martin, South Carolina, just completely lost in that shuffle this year. Um, but I mean, they they did make the Final Four run, so that's that's enough equity at a school like South Carolina for years and years, you would think. Um, what was I gonna say? Something insightful, probably um, about. Like oh no, about Arkansas. Like they're they're a team that's perennial, you know. 22nd to 24th in the AP poll, just lock them in for an 8 or 9 seed in the NCAA tournament. They might be a little better this year. Um, they had the one especially good year with Portis and Qualls, but like that's, that's just a, a solid, solid place to be. Um, for, you know, a school like Arkansas, a place like that in the SEC where not a ton is expected of you and you like this, it just adds to the overall depth of the conference. And you have another stalwart, so to speak, in A&M, um, especially when they get back to 100%. They're, a, I'd say, top seven, top eight team in the country. Kentucky and Florida up there, too. That's three really good teams. We haven't had that in the SEC in a very long time. Since, since the days of Bruce Pearl's Tennessee team. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, like they're uh, battling with with Memphis, really, for you know supremacy yeah. in, in all of college basketball. So that's a that's a surprising in a good way conference for sure. Definitely. Um, and and we are now in conference play and, and everywhere, um, not just the Big Twelve, mm-hmm. but looking around the rest of the country. Obviously, Kansas is potential losing the, the throne. Is there anything else that's, that surprised you in a particular conference so far? Probably just Villanova's struggles with Butler. They've lost their last three games. Butler has won, I think, three games against top twenty or top teams in the country in the last four years. And I think Villanova's been that team twice. So it's just crazy to see how much the Wildcats struggle with Butler, especially given that this is supposed to be a down year for Butler. Yes, they have Kamar Baldwin. Yes, they have Keelan Martin. But they lose a lot. They they have a different coach. There's a lot of transition going on there, and they didn't really have that in, exciting of a non-conference schedule. Yeah, Butler's just one of those teams where they're, they're pesky and they're going to play elite, highly ranked teams well, regardless of what their roster is looking like year in, year out. And unfortunately, Villanova pretty much always fits that description. So, I mean, their their struggles have been well documented. I know you've been following them and the Big East very closely. So they're unfortunately going to be be struggling with, with Butler a lot, even though this is Transition year with Holton and leaving and, you know, a lot of talent from last year not being there outside of Martin and Baldwin. But for me, the, uh, the surprising thing 
None of this series surprising. More of water finding this level once again. Arizona back to being yeah. good at basketball. Unless you just spent something in the water in the Bahamas, because they haven't lost a game after that. Um, once since conference play started, they they beat Arizona State, which is not a game you would have circled before the season, but that was the Sun Devils' first loss of the year. Um, still haven't lost since those three games in the Bahamas. Um, they are playing Utah right now, so I can't promise that will still be a true statement when this podcast comes out, but they're winning right now, so it's working good. Um, I mean, there's there's just no reason that that team should have been, you know, struggling as much as they were. The good news is they condensed it to, like, half a week out of the season, and right. once they're at full, full strength, that, that trio of Aiden, Trier, and Alkin is, I mean, as good as any in the country. I kind of feel like this it, this happens every year where Arizona is just all of a sudden playing far below their talent level, and then Sean Miller gets on camera in a press conference super sweaty and is just like, I don't know what's going on. Like, this team needs to step it up. Otherwise, we're not going very far, and then they'll make, like, an Elite Eight run. But no further. Look at... DeAndre Ayton is probably, I I don't know, it's him and Marvin Bagley are the two best players in the country right now, and Trey Young's a close third, I'd say. The things he can do down low, he's just a grown man playing with these 18 to 22-year-olds, and he himself is 18 or 19. It's unbelievable how good he is on the glass and how polished he is offensively. There's no, like you said, there's no reason this team should be losing games like they have been. There's just, even without one of the two guards or both, they, they just have so much talent in him that they should be able to win games. Yeah, and I mean, that's been part of the issues is missing Raleigh Elton. Um, but yeah, I mean, Bulls, I know, would be certainly happy to have either Aiden or Bagley next year. Um, yeah, especially keep that that Arizona pipeline going with the the Finn Reaper finisher. Call him what you will. Um, but yeah, I Arizona, love marketing. <laughs> Arizona is one of those teams that will be there on the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. And I mean, at the beginning of the season, preseason, just looking at the roster, that big three saying once once Hawkins comes back. You know, this is a team that can finally, you would think, end Miller's, you know, curse and actually make it to the Final Four. Um, they they look like more of a, a top ten team than a, than a top four team at best right now. That can obviously change over the rest of the course of the season as, as different teams get better or worse. you think Arizona's a team that would fall into the get better category. Um, but you know, Arizona State's going to be a team they'll have to contend with for that Pac-12 title. Already beaten them once. Going to be more opportunities for for good wins in that conference. Um, so I think Arizona really really played their way out of the national spotlight. Um, in the non-conference season, now they they have to play their way back. And transitioning kind of a team, and you know, 
Riggs mentioned this on Twitter a couple of times and really resonated with me. Notre Dame, quite the opposite. And he said in particular, Notre Dame last year's Indiana. And <clears throat> a, a, resounding, <laughs> a resounding yes, because they had all that non-conference success, winning Maui, struggling, um, losing to inferior in-state team in this year's Indiana, and then losing their far and away best player to injury, Bonzi Colson. You know, completely different game from OG Ananobi, but that similar role on the team. Um, and now you're relying on Matt Farrell, who's not at 100% himself, to kind of take over this team. And, and now it just does not seem like a very good basketball team to me. And I don't know if this is even a team right now that, that can make the NCAA tournament. Yeah, it's it went from top of the world to, oh my god, what is happening for Notre Dame in the blink of an eye. They, I don't know what they do without Bonzi Golson because he is everything for that team. He is the glue guy. He's the heart and soul. He's the scorer. He's the rebounder. He does it all, you know. You can't add a couple extra guys to the lineup to make up for him because you can only start five. So the guards, it's all on the guards essentially at this point. Gibbs and Farrell have to take over and play big games. Otherwise, it's going to be bad. It's going to be real bad for uh, Notre Dame moving forward. But they, them, Notre Dame and USC have both been mightily disappointing of late. Yeah, USC is just completely a forgotten team at this point. Um, yeah. Like, you know, it was pretty much coin flip between them and Arizona in the Pac-12 in the preseason. Arizona's at least played its way back. Like, really, the, the bad part of their season was really condensed to half a week. They haven't lost outside of the Bahamas. And that's good because, you know, the rest of the season is in America. Mm-hmm. But USC it really hasn't done much to justify its, its lofty preseason ranking, which is shocking because this is a team that returns – Everybody 90, from last 97 percent of their minutes. Yeah, and like it, it seemed just impossible to not build on last season with all of the roster continuity on top of that, which is usually so huge in college sports. You look at, you know, basically Washington football last year. That was that was their big thing was continuity, and they rode that all the way to making the playoff. But USC just they, they've never been able to, to put it all together this season. And it's not like there's a lot of moving parts, really. Um, like, they're assimilating a lot of new faces into, um, you know, a new system or anything like that. It's still it's still Andy Enfield's system. It's still pretty much everybody from last year throwing another five-star freshman in there. But, yeah, that's there's a real disappointing mystery, I'd say, of uh, of college basketball this season. And, I mean, Arizona State really took their place in that elite um, nationally Pac-12 team. So, all things considered, the conference is still about the same strength, but, I mean, you really, 
really have to wonder why USC isn't up there and if they're ever going to be able to figure it out and at least put together a a fourth or fifth seed caliber season. Right, and they, I mean, it's it's kind of like the the problem, the East Coast bias that everyone talks about is USC was so hyped preseason, and then Arizona State, like you said, comes out of nowhere, takes their place, and USC is completely forgotten about. I have not heard, besides us, in maybe a couple tweets over the last month, anything about USC basketball. That's how, A, bad they've been, and then, B, how little people care. It's just the troubles, I guess you could say, of playing in the, quote, Conference of Champions. Yeah, I mean, the East Coast is very biased against losing games, and that's what USC has done. So I can I can at least understand a little bit, but except yeah. when Central Florida doesn't lose any. Right, right. We tie the full circle. <laughs> USC just completely has fallen off the map, and yeah, I mean they're they're going to have to absolutely play their way back in. It's it's going to be pretty much impossible to ever get to the same regard that they were held in um, preseason at any point this season, but again, they, I mean, they can at least get back into the, the national consciousness by winning games, but they've been struggling so inconsistent and I mean, with everybody they have on the roster, same as, as last year, it's it's puzzling to me why there hasn't been growth, basically. Right, um, right. And, I mean, they're going to continue to, to toil away in anonymity until they're able to, to prove otherwise that there has been growth, that they can get back to, you know, knocking off top-tier teams. And at this point, it's going to have to be just coming close to running the table in the Pac-12, the very least, beating up on all the bottom feeders, beating all the good teams, and giving Arizona and Arizona State all they can handle. Right. And it's there, – there are some decent teams in the middle of the pack there, in the Pac-12. I think Washington State's a lot better than a lot of people give them credit for. Mm-hmm. Washington's won a couple big games already, so – Maybe they're not as terrible as the Romar days, but I don't know. I mean, it's there's a lot of work to do for USC. And at this point, I think they're significantly out of the NCAA picture. Yeah, and UCLA, I mean, opportunity for good wins. Oregon, yep. solid if unspectacular. But, yeah, I mean, they're, they're going to have to play their way in. They're not, they're not a team that should be feeling comfortable about their lot at all. Definitely. Um, so, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a quick whip round of, of college basketball. Um, Indiana has actually played no games since we last recorded. Um, they're just kind of been chilling. Um, Georgia, Alabama going to be playing for the, the right to be considered national champions along with UCF. Um, any, any last words before we, we send it to next week. Go go nights and roll tide. Okay. I agree with the first statement. And we will uh see you next week.